Okay, we're continuing in Mark chapter 8. This is really a text we could have uh, included in last week's sermon text, but that would have made for far too long of a sermon, so uh, we didn't do that. So anyway, I'm going to actually read uh, that portion so that you have a little bit of a context here. So... um, going to pick up in 31. Uh, Peter has just made the great confession that Jesus is the Christ. And then it says that he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, graciously open your holy and eternal word to us poor people and establish us in the knowledge of your will and direct all who err in your words to the right way again so that we may live according to your divine pleasure. In Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned earlier uh, in the worship service, today is a great day in part because we've got a baptism. And I want us to recognize that baptism is not the end of something. Baptism is really the beginning of something. A baptism is the beginning of full discipleship in Christ. It is in part, particularly in this case, since it's based on a profession of faith as opposed to uh, a covenant child receiving the promises of grace. Uh, This is someone who has experienced God's grace and is uh, coming to follow Jesus. In other words, to have a Jesus-shaped life. But what does it mean to follow not just Jesus in a abstract sense, but more particularly, what does it mean to follow a suffering Messiah? Because that is the context of Jesus' statements here. We have been saved from the wages of our disobedience by trusting in that suffering Messiah. And then the question playing on Francis Schaeffer is, how shall we then live? There's a bit of tension 
that Jesus is dealing with as he address, as he answers this sort of question. And it has to do with the groups that uh, tend to be around Jesus. On the one hand, you have the Pharisees. They're not present uh, for this conversation, and yet they cast a shadow over almost everything. Okay? Uh, the, the Pharisees were afraid that Jesus would be preaching some form of cheap forgiveness. There are many people who are afraid of, who are afraid of cheap forgiveness. Uh, that's one of the things that my father struggles with. He, he can't conceive of, uh, uh, sheer forgiveness. In his mind, there has to be some debt that's paid, and he can't grasp the fact that Jesus is the one who paid the debt, which is the same problem the Pharisees had. The crowds, on the other hand, uh, they saw the, the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus, but they also feared perhaps from the Pharisees that grace had to be earned not simply received. And so Jesus has just rebuked uh, Peter because Peter has in mind the things of man, not the things of God. Peter didn't want a suffering Messiah. Uh, Peter wanted a kingdom that would come in glory uh, there and then, not in the future at some point in time. And so Jesus speaks to his disciples in rebuking Peter, but then he now calls the crowd to himself and the disciples. And so uh, a Apparently, this was not a completely private conversation. Uh, this was done possibly on the road while they're going from point A to point B, and the crowds may have been around, but they were not all made in front of the crowd. But now, Jesus invites the crowd in, precisely because this is not a secret that is meant for the big three. This is not a secret that's meant for the 12 disciples. This is truth that is intended for the crowds as well. They need to hear this. They need to understand what it means to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus makes this conditional statement, if you want to follow after me, or put it another way, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be my apprentice, this is what has to happen. This is what it's going to be like. And he offers three commands summed up in this phrase, this clause here. Deny himself, or he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The suffering Messiah is, in fact, a savior, but he is also an example. He's an example of how to live after we have trusted him for salvation. In other words, he's the pattern of the life of faith. Jesus is the pattern of what it looks like to trust the Father and to walk in his ways. Jesus is the pattern. And the first part of that pattern is to deny oneself. It has to, has to do with losing sight of yourself, losing sight of your interests, so they're not the most important thing in your life. What becomes the most important thing in your life is Jesus 
and this kingdom that he invites you to partake in, to be a part of, to embrace and live in. Kingdom citizenship becomes far more important than the kingdom of self. Denial. Think of it this way. Many of you are married. Some of you hope to be married or once were married. But what happens when you get married and you still live for yourself? You create havoc in a marriage. A marriage that cannot last uh, because you're, well, that marriage is serving you as opposed to you serving that marriage. That's the idea of denial here, of putting the interests of someone else as more important than yourself, but it's not just the interests of your spouse. Here it's the interests of Jesus. This includes, but is not limited to, what uh, Paul talks about in Titus 2, about saying no to the desires of the flesh, precisely because those desires of the flesh are at odds with the work of the Spirit in your life. The Spirit who's leading you into fuller obedience to God, well, the flesh is just wanting its own little way of corruption. And so it's important for Christians to understand uh, that the life that Jesus calls them to do or to live is one of self-denial. But it's not just self-denial, it's also taking up the cross. Uh, Not necessarily literally, although some would at some point literally take up the cross, but Jesus is using this picture that is very familiar to all of them because they've all seen it. They've all seen the condemned criminal with the cross beam upon their shoulder walking out of the city to go where they are going to be attached to it and hung until they die. They know what it's like to to see someone walk in that parade on the march to death. And Jesus is inviting them to fall in place behind him, to create, in a sense, an army of the condemned, an army of people who are going to their death, not the death of war, but the death that is produced by love. That's what he's inviting. To love in such a way that you might die. This is very different from the other son of God that we heard about at the very beginning of this gospel, because remember, Caesar would call himself by that title, son of God. Caesar has an army that figuratively follows behind him. He actually just sent them out from Rome, of course, you know, with orders. But how he conquers the world is through this army. These legions of soldiers armed to the teeth to bring destruction upon anyone who will not obey. But Jesus tells his army, get behind me. I'm going first. I'm the author and perfecter of your faith. I'm the captain of your salvation. Get in behind me. We walk to die. 
And so it's similar to something like the Bataan uh, death march in World War II, the people going to their death. And so in other words, Christianity is not about self-actualization. Christianity is not about seeking your best life now. Christianity is not about climbing social ladders. Christianity is about following a suffering Savior into his suffering. Now, this is not a call to seek conflict. There seems to be a popular thing today to somehow challenge the the government to come on, bring it on, toss me in jail. That's not the way of Jesus. That's not what I see the apostles doing in the book of Acts. But they were willing to suffer as opposed to running into suffering. There's a distinction that's that's very important there for us. Because when we lose that distinction, we lose the sense of its being for the gospel. And our suffering is to be for him and the gospel, as we'll see in a few moments. But here's the pattern. First comes the cross. Then comes the crown. First comes the suffering. Then comes the glory. We see this repeated by the Apostle Paul. For instance, Romans 8. And if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. First comes the cross, then comes the crown. Paul talks about this again, Philippians chapter 3. <clears throat> He's longing that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so uh, this idea of suffering was one that marked Paul and marked Paul's ministry He was not surprised when he suffered for the gospel, but neither did he, as I said, chase suffering. We see it in Peter from the reading that we had from chapter 4 of his first letter. You know, basically have the same mind in you, Jesus, who suffered. Suffer yourselves. We find it in the the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. You had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Okay, how many are signing up for that one? (laughs) They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. That makes no sense unless you have a greater love, unless your property is not all that important to you. And the author of Hebrews says why. Since 
You knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. In other words, uh, they had already done this. They knew that they had, they were, they were looking for the city whose builder and architect was God, and yet right at that moment, they were tempted to turn away. And the author reminds them of the suffering that they've already endured, and God who is faithful will provide what he has done. This is a major part of Martin Luther's theology. He talked about the difference between the theology of the cross and the theology of glory, and that there were many in his day who were preaching a theology of glory, similar to the health-wealth gospel of today, oh, where real Christians don't suffer. And Luther talked about how real Christians do suffer and should expect to suffer. It's not an anomaly when a Christian suffers. It's par for the course. It's standard operating procedure when Christians experience affliction. We see this as well in the theology of Calvin. When he gets to the Christian life in his book, The Institutes, there is a remarkable focus on this passage. There's a remarkable focus, and he keeps calling Christians to deny themselves, to pick up their cross, because he sees the Christian life as one as cross-bearing, similar to Luther. So in other words, Jesus doesn't promise us a life of ease. Now, some of you might be confused. Didn't Jesus call us to, you know, come to him, we who are weary and burdened? that he would give us rest, that his yoke is light and easy. Yes, his yoke is light. His burden is easy. It tends to remove a lot of the complications that we experience in life. It is light and it is easy because Jesus is lowly and gentle of heart. But Jesus calls us to walk after him, to walk as he walked. And so Jesus calls us to follow his footsteps in this cross-formed life. And so as she comes for baptism, that should be in the front of her mind. And we who watch, who have already been baptized, this is a reminder of the life that God calls you to as well. Now Hebrews talked about a promise What promise accompanies this call to follow in his footsteps? And we see this in verse 35. The call to suffer, to possibly lose one's life, does not sound admittedly incredibly attractive. You'll notice that unlike um, health, wealth, prosperity teachers, we are not in a large, ginormous auditorium. It's not a message that sells hot. And that's, in a sense, what Jesus is doing here. (laughs) He's culling the crowd. Because he's speaking to them the cost of discipleship, as Bonhoeffer mentioned. That when Jesus calls a man, he bids him to come and die. But Jesus also offers promises. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake, Okay, there's the the loss that is experienced. Following Jesus, being a herald of this message of forgiveness, 
puts us into opposition with a culture at large. We are set free. We have a a light yoke, and yet we have this encouragement similar to this from Paul. For you were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's what Jesus is bidding them to do. Losing their life for Christ and the gospel, and because of, precisely because of the freedom that they have. Life here is not the usual word that we might expect that has to do with biological life, physical life. It, it extends beyond that. It includes that. It's the word we usually get, we usually translate soul. That's why King James often has that word soul in this place but it has to do with that idea of the seat of desires, the seat of our affections, the place of our identity, who we are and what we really live for. And so the idea here is that kingdom-shaped people, cross-shaped people, and I'm using those interchangeably this morning, oppose the wickedness of the earthly kingdoms like Rome, where self-interest was Everything. It was about how to get ahead, how to have as much pleasure as you possibly can. This kingdom is one in which you lose self. Not that you don't become, uh, you're not concerned about yourself at all, but that's not the most important thing on your list of priorities. For instance, reminded of uh, Gail Sayers, many of you know of the, the, the great running back of the uh, Chicago Bears, whose career was cut short by uh, injuries to his knees. And if you look back at some of the footage of him running, I mean, it's phenomenal what he was able to do, how he was able to cut and all of that. Well, I'm not a Bears fan, okay? But I got his book. And uh, I appreciate his book, The name of the book is, I Am Third. Not first, not second, third. Sayers, Sayers, who was a Christian, talked about first God, then others, then me. He understood the cross-formed life and sought to live it. Back to this idea, our identity, who we are, what we live for, what's important to us, those ideas of identity, uh, morality, what we do and what we don't do, all of these things are intended to be shaped by God's Spirit instead of being shaped by the flesh or our sinful nature we inherited from Adam. A shift takes place. We used to live to gratify the desires of the flesh, and now we're supposed to shift so that we walk in step with the Spirit in a way that pleases God by faith. In other words, another way of looking at this is that when Jesus speaks to these people, he wants them to know, that, or wants us to know as well, that nominal Christians are not a threat. 
to anybody. Sunday Christians, or another way of putting it, are not really a threat. Privatized faith is not really a threat to anybody. But people who take Jesus seriously, seriously to the extent that it shapes not just Sunday morning from 10.30 to noonish, but a faith that shapes 24-7. A faith that shapes how they do marriage. A faith that shapes how they parent their children. A faith that shapes how they work in the workplace. How they have fun. How they manage all of their relationships. That is the kind of faith that the world is afraid of. That is the kind of faith uh, that is threatening to our world, that wants to privatize your faith, that wants wants to make you squeeze it to your personal thoughts as opposed to how you live. That those thoughts are manifested in actions, not just in your home, but in the marketplace of ideas in life. Jesus also had in mind this idea that persecution would most likely be in view. That many who would follow Jesus would and still do experience what we call martyrdom. Those who seem to be on the losing end of life because they followed Jesus. Those who seem to be on the losing end because they suffered for Jesus. Meaning, perhaps they couldn't work like they wanted to work. We see in the book of Revelation, in the the letters to the churches, uh, that because some Christians were no longer partaking in the guilds, okay, unions, okay, that's their idea of a union, and and, uh, those those guilds would have gods that you would sacrifice to, and if you didn't sacrifice to the gods, you couldn't be part of the guild or union, and therefore you couldn't work in that field. Okay, yeah, I understand that. And so for some people, following Jesus meant they lost their jobs. And what happens when you lose your job? You can't feed your family. Some people experienced uh, rejection. They experienced uh, verbal abuse. Uh, They would experience sometimes even imprisonment, torture, and death. So those people who look like they're on the wrong side of life, Jesus says because they have not tried to save their life, but they've lost it for his sake, they actually save it. They don't experience the second death. These are the people who share in Jesus' life and in his glory, and it begins with resurrection, Jesus' resurrection. This identity and this glory that they have with Jesus exceeds any that we could gain on earth by just going with the flow. And so... I can't promise you riches. I can't promise you a big house, a fancy car, sudden healing of the effects of your stroke. I can't promise you any of that. 
But I can promise you this. Jesus will give you far greater things at the end. Because you are going to share in his glory. A glory greater than any Caesar ever knew. And it's going to be a holy glory, not a tainted glory. And so Jesus promises that those who follow save their lives. Third question. Well, what if we don't follow in his footsteps? Well, what if we hear you know, this whole losing your life thing and go, ah, I'm going to rethink that one, Jesus. We see Jesus addressing this in verses 35 and through 38. He includes the consequences for those who refuse to pick up their cross, deny themselves, and follow him. There's a consequence to not following in his footsteps. Simply, those who would, for whoever would save his life will lose it. That thing that you're working so hard to protect, you're going to lose it. You're going to be like the man who installed all the security systems in the world and had private security staff and everything else and still gets robbed. All of your efforts to preserve what you think is life will fail. These efforts look wise from a worldly perspective. You have in mind the things of men. Jesus said to Peter. Avoiding suffering looks wise. Avoiding rejection looks wise. Avoiding possible death, torture, or dismemberment looks wise. But ultimately, they will not be able to keep their life safe and sound in the final analysis. In part because, as we see in places like 1 Corinthians 7, verse 31, the present form of this world is passing away. We deceive ourselves into thinking that it's going to last forever. That the people on the top are always going to be on the top, and it's going to be awesome. But it's not just Paul. John, chapter 2 of his first letter Verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Gee, don't you? Sounds a lot like John heard this sermon. <laughs> this statement by Jesus. Right? Jesus continues about the consequences. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? And forfeit his soul or life. Jesus, in a sense, wants to create this whole this word picture of scales. You might have the social standing you've always wanted. You might have the house you've always wanted. You might have the garage full of fancy cars that you've always wanted. You might have the bank uh, uh, accounts that you've always wanted. The friends who kiss up to you that you've always wanted. The house on the beach that you dreamed of. But for the summer, there's also the house 
in the mountains that you dreamed of. What does it profit you to get all of that and yet lose your soul? From a human perspective, it seems wise to gain these possessions. It seems wise to gain this power. It seems wise to to accumulate this prestige. But the whole world is not enough to compensate for your soul. Missionary Jim Elliott understood this. He was likely thought a fool, but he said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliot gave up his life in the sense of pursuing success. For the sake of Jesus and the gospel, uh, he and a group of others, including uh, Nick St. They, they went down to Ecuador to tell indigenous peoples about Jesus. And from a worldly perspective, it seems stupid and foolish, and precisely because those very people they came to announce this message of the gospel to killed them. It seemed like they had lost everything, but Jim Elliot knew better. He knew he couldn't keep his earthly life anyway, but he has, in a sense, gained eternal life through faith in Christ. Jesus continues in a similar fashion. What can a man give in return for his soul? In other words, when you lose it, you can't buy it back. All that stuff you accumulated can't buy back what you forfeited. You can't buy it back with baubles. The Lord of the Rings, hopefully there's no one who has Lord of the Rings fatigue (laughs) right here. Okay, But that's the whole thing with Gollum. All he ever wanted was that ring of power. He went all chasing all through Middle Earth to find the hobbit who had the ring of power. It's all that mattered to him. He even entered into the service of that hobbit, waiting for the opportunity to betray him to get the ring of power. And he was glad when he finally got it, when it finally entered into his hand and no one else could take it, such glee and delight, even though he was falling into the fires of Mount Doom where he would perish. The ring wouldn't get him out of that. And his mind, he gained life, but in reality, he lost his soul. That's a picture of what it looks like. And, but for most of us, it's not nearly that exciting. <laughs> we get lost in the, the 
the stuff of life and don't realize that we haven't walked with Jesus. And we get to the end and go, wow, that's all I got? This is not what I expected. Whoever, Jesus says, is ashamed of me. Now it gets really personal. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Speaking specifically of uh, life in Palestine at that particular point in time, where the Jewish authorities would persecute people, people would be put out of the synagogue, and hopefully that would be the least of their troubles. But again, here's that idea. Ashamed of Jesus so that you don't admit you're walking in his footsteps because you don't want to suffer consequences for walking with Jesus. Because wicked communities, adulterous and sinful generations that hate the gospel will persecute people who walk with Jesus. That phrase that Jesus quotes is from Isaiah 40, amongst many other places. And really, particularly in Isaiah, it's speaking of the covenant community that has walked away from God. Well, what happens to the one who's ashamed of Jesus? Jesus says, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. They will not find pleasure, delight in the eyes of Jesus. But Jesus will, in a sense, turn his back on them when he returns. This is a hard saying. But this is not the only place Jesus says it. For instance, Matthew 10 First, he gives the positive. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. So the one that says, I follow Jesus, Jesus is going to say to the Father, he follows me. Okay? This was, in a sense, the life verse, I think, of Roy Orbison. <laughs> this is what he quoted in interviews. That's why I keep telling people about Jesus, Roy would say. But now the negative side of it in verse 33. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. The people who say, I have nothing to do with Jesus, Jesus will say, I have nothing to do with them, to the Father. Hard word. We can't cover those up and pretend they don't exist. The things of man will never satisfy. We will always want more, 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 more. It is only eternal glory that can ultimately satisfy our souls. And so the answer to our question is that those who seek to save their life are actually going to lose it. So baptism is a beginning. It's not an ending is the beginning of a life that is patterned on the life of Jesus, where self-interest is laid aside as we deny ourselves 
as we pick up our cross and carry it following in his footsteps. And this indeed at times can feel like dying to us. But in the midst of that, we have this promise of life to cling to. This is not a life that we can earn, but is one that is graciously given to us by that suffering Savior who also demands to be our King. Those who seek to cling on to this life as if it were a valuable treasure will find that it becomes a millstone that sinks them in the sea. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for this great promise. We thank you that Jesus, knowing what a mess we are, (laughs) invites us to come and follow him. Uh, That Jesus, knowing how damaged we are, how unclean we are, fixes us so we follow. As opposed to calling us to follow, and then maybe he'll fix us. So we thank you for the amazing grace that is evident in this passage, that is evident in how Jesus approaches sinners like us with his patience, with his grace and his mercy. But help us to also recognize that he doesn't set us right so we can go our own way, but he sets us right so we can walk after him. Help us to wrestle with that and what it will look like in our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.